Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. So Lord, even what the enemy means for evil, you mean it for our good. And we fly that not only as a banner over this chapter and over all of Genesis, but over our lives today in Christ. So teach us to trust it and teach us to trust in your good, sovereign, covenant-keeping purposes that you've been working out all throughout history. We trust in you. Be with us now as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've made it through Genesis. Over the last year or two, I can't remember exactly how long it's been. It's been over a year, not quite two years. We've been on a journey through the book of Genesis together, and today we've reached chapter 50. And I'm so glad to be standing here today to be preaching that and to enjoy this chapter with you. And as I was preparing for this sermon, um, there's a lot of really good stuff here, and it was kind of tough to figure out how to package it all together. So it, it wasn't tough in the sense that you know, I don't know what it's about or what the author meant. It was tough because when we've come to the end of a book like Genesis, there are so many themes that we've seen running all the way through and it comes to a conclusion here. And so what was tough was to figure out how to package it in a way that doesn't become too much, right? We don't want to get lost in the weeds. We don't want to forget, you know, what we're seeing here. We don't want to miss the beautiful simplicity of what God is actually showing us here in Genesis 50. So what's so beautifully simple to me in this chapter is that this chapter is just about what Genesis has been about. It's a simple story in this chapter. Joseph returns Jacob's body to Canaan. His brothers ask him for forgiveness, and then Joseph grants it, and then Joseph dies, right? So it's a simple story That's basically what happens. But the picture that Moses is painting for us in this final chapter is an affirmation that in Joseph's life, in Jacob's life, and then all the way back from Isaac's life, through Abraham's life, and even all the way back to Genesis 1 to 3, through the ups and the downs, the wanderings and the homecomings, the sinful people, the righteous actions of faith, when all hope seemed lost and when God's promises were confirmed, all through that, God has been sovereignly in control, working out his good purposes to faithfully keep his promises. That's the story. And we see that story here in chapter 50, and that's been the story the entire time. God has never lost control, right? He's never lost the plot, (laughs) Through the darkness and the hopelessness and the sinfulness that we've seen along the way, even through the fall of humanity itself in chapter 3, God has been working for ultimate good. So we see in our text this morning the declaration of Genesis 50.20. One of my favorite verses, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And what I want to do is see that rock-solid truth not only in our chapter today, but I want to fly it over the whole book of Genesis as a banner of God's sovereign, faithful, covenant-keeping purposes. We've seen so much evil in Genesis, right? 
Just remember the, the points of the story that we've seen so far. Sin everywhere. Satan certainly had intentions in all of that, right? He was trying to mess things up. But God has been in control to use those things as means to ultimate good ends. And that's what we trust in this morning. So what we're going to see in our text today is three simple pictures of faith in God's sovereign covenant-keeping purposes. We're going to see the culmination of Jacob's faith. We're going to see the trust of Joseph's faith. And we're going to see the future of Joseph's faith. And in each of those pictures, we'll be reminded of some of the themes that we've journeyed through along the way in Genesis that have been held together by the sovereign hand of our good God. And just as it's been true throughout Genesis in the lives of God's people, it is true today for you and for me. It's true today. So the call today, as we consider the culmination of the faith in these saints, is to be reminded of God's good purposes in our lives and to trust anew that God is working for our ultimate good in Jesus Christ. So that's, what we're, that's the plan. So let's see it. Let's look at Genesis chapter 50 together. Point number one, the culmination of Jacob's faith. Let's just read the first two verses. Jacob has just died, and here's how Joseph responds to his father's death. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, why would they do that? Embalming wasn't necessarily a traditional practice for the Israelite people, okay? This was an Egyptian tradition. Egyptians did it so that they could preserve the body to enjoy the pleasures of the afterlife. Put them in a tomb, they can enjoy the afterlife, well-preserved, pickled, right? So is Joseph finally selling out to the cult of Egypt here, right? No. No, he's not. That's not what he's doing. Remember, a few weeks ago, we saw that Jacob made Joseph swear that he would be buried not in Egypt, which was not the promised home, but in Canaan, in the promised land, the land that God promised to his grandfather, Abraham. And that would have been quite a long trip to transport his body from Egypt back to Canaan. A lot of time for decay to set in. So... Far from being an act of Egyptian spirituality, this was to prepare Jacob for the long journey home. He's going home. This is further confirmed by the fact that Joseph had his physicians and not the Egyptian cult priests do the embalming. This was a, a medical act of preservation, not a spiritual act of worship in Egypt. Okay, So Jacob's body is prepared for the long journey home to the final resting place of his fathers. And the whole country mourns for him, which is amazing. It says in verse 3 that the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. Now, 70 days is only two days short of the amount of time that Egypt would weep for a pharaoh. So Jacob was well respected. He was revered as the father of Joseph, the man who kept them alive through that famine. He's the one who got them through. And so there's this well-respected man, this mourning two days short of what they would mourn for, <clears throat> for a king. So the scene is set. The mourning finishes. Joseph talks to the house of Pharaoh, gets permission to leave and to bury his father in the promised land. And Pharaoh agrees. 
And what follows is a grand funeral procession ordered by Pharaoh, made up of Egyptian dignitaries, Pharaoh's own servants, then Jacob's household and Joseph's brothers, so that it says in verse 8, only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. This was a grand procession. So they go on their way. They get to Canaan. They get to the, the threshing floor of Atad. And they stop for seven days and mourn. And they mourn together with the Egyptians so fervently that the Canaanites in the land notice. And they name the place Abel Mizraim, which means the mourning of the Egyptians. That's what that means, mourning of the Egyptians. And then we get to verses 12 to 14. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham brought, bought with the field from Ephron, from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, what are we supposed to see in this kingly funeral procession from Egypt of Jacob to the promised land. What we're seeing is the culmination of Jacob's faith in the promises of God that God made way back to Abraham in Genesis 15. And even before that, this is a continuation of the restoration of God's purposes for humanity back in the first three chapters of Genesis. So I want to I see that for just a minute. We're going to take a brief stroll through a few points of the, of the story of Genesis to see how we got here with Jacob being taken back to the promised land. So remember back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created the universe by the word of his power, and the apex of his creation was mankind, right? Very good. And he placed them in the garden, which was the place where God would walk with Adam and Eve to be with them, enjoying his presence, right? And remember, all throughout Genesis, we've talked about the covenant triangle. Remember what that is? God's people in God's place enjoying God's presence. You remember that? Not if you're with me. Yeah. So that's the theme that we've seen. But then sin entered the world and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Their fellowship with God was broken but was God surprised? Was he taken off guard? Was he out of control? No. The promise of Genesis 3.15, the coming seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would reverse the curse and restore fellowship with God. So now the trajectory is set for the rest of the book, right? Who's the coming seed? He's coming. It was promised. Who's it going to be? Who's the one who will crush Satan and restore fellowship with God? And then the genealogies start. We've seen a lot of genealogies throughout Genesis, right? But there's meaning in those genealogies. We're seeing the line of promise continued, God faithfully keeping his promise through Seth and then Noah. And then we get to Abraham. And what does God do? What does he say to childless Abram? He makes a covenant with him. And in chapter 15, God says, behold, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward, right? I'm your God. I'm the one. And he says, your son shall be your heir. 
Your offspring shall be as numerous as the stars, and I've given you this land to possess, and your offspring shall possess it. So there it is. The promise of God's people in God's place enjoying his presence continues. Faith in the promises and purposes of God. Abraham believes, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then Isaac is born, right? The seed. And he becomes the heir to the line of promise. And when Sarah dies, Abraham buys a field in Mechpelah. Does that ring a bell from our text today? Abraham buys that field and he buries Sarah there. And then when Abraham dies, he's buried there with her. And then Isaac grows up. He has many trials, many wanderings, ups and downs. He marries Rebekah. And then God says to Isaac in chapter 26, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There it is again. God's keeping his promise through Isaac, sustaining the line of promise all the way. God is working his purposes. And then we get to Jacob and Esau. Who is chosen to receive the blessing, the inheritance of the promise? Is it the older Esau? No, it's the younger Jacob. God sovereignly choosing his sovereign purpose is being worked out. And Jacob receives the blessing and then throughout his life, many ups and downs, many wanderings, many trials, many sinful decisions of tricking people and hedging his bets. But what does God do? He says to Jacob in chapter 28, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. There it is again. Promise made to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, God keeping his promise. We've seen it all along the way. He's keeping his promises. He's continuing to sustain the hope that God's people and God's place enjoying God's presence remains alive. God is doing it. And then Jacob has 12 sons with Rachel and Leah. That's its own messed up story. And Joseph is sold into slavery. In the last several weeks, we've seen that story, right, of Joseph. And God works his purposes and eventually reunites Jacob to Joseph in Egypt. And now we're back to 50. <laughs> and Jacob is going back to the cave of Machpelah, the one that Abraham bought to bury Sarah. And where Abraham and Isaac are also buried along with their wives. Jacob, by faith, until the very end, trusted that the promise of God to redeem and to provide a place for his people and to enjoy in his presence is still being worked out. And he is heading home. This is the culmination of Jacob's faith. He leaves Egypt. He leaves a sojourner in a foreign land and is buried with his fathers in the land of promise. What we're seeing here is Jacob's exodus. Exodus. 
This is Jacob's exodus from Egypt. So think about it. Moses is writing about this grand funeral procession out of Egypt to the land of promise just a few chapters before we read about the great exodus, right? Of the Israelites out of slavery from Pharaoh and into the desert wanderings and into the promised land. So this is a foreshadowing of what's to come. It's like a sort of dress rehearsal. So here we see Joseph carrying the bones of Jacob, right? Out of Egypt. Then in the Exodus, Moses will carry the bones of Joseph to the promised land. Now the children of Israel are left in Goshen, but then they will all join in this triumphal procession out of bondage and slavery. It's coming, right? Here, the might of Israel's or Egypt's army are accompanying the group. They're with the group to bury Jacob. Then they will oppose Israel. And what's really interesting is that in taking Jacob to be buried, they go down around the Dead Sea through the, f- the threshing floor of Atad, which is the same route that the Israelites will take 400 years later out of Egypt. This is a dress rehearsal of what's to come, the exodus out of slavery and towards the possession of the promised land. And this procession of Jacob out of Egypt is the culmination of Jacob's faith in the promises and purposes of his sovereign good God. The promise to preserve his people and to give them the promised inheritance and bless them in his presence. That's what we see in Jacob going home, to be buried with his people in God's promised place. And this promise, like we've already said a couple times in this service, ultimately finds its fulfillment in the true and the better son of promise, Jesus Christ. And the coming new heavens and the new earth, God's place where all of his children who will be more numerous than the stars in the sky will enjoy his presence forever. You guys, that's you and me. That's you and me. God has kept his promise till now. And he sent Jesus to live and to die so that we might be grafted in and become heirs to this line of promise so that we will be with God in his place, enjoying his presence forever. That's what's happening. Do you trust him? When you you look around at the world, the apparent craziness, the the out-of-control nature of what's happening? Do you believe that God is in control? He is in control, working his purposes, sovereignly keeping his promises to unite all things to himself. So trust him as Jacob did. He will bring you home in Christ. Jacob went home. He's going to bring you home too. And you will dwell securely with your God. And not only did Jacob believe this promise until the end, so did Joseph. So let's move on. Point number two, the trust of Joseph's faith. So we continue in our story in Genesis 50. Joseph and his brothers return to Egypt just as he told Pharaoh they would, which really in and of itself is an act of faith. They're needing to walk back out of the promised land and trust that God's got them, Right? walking away from the promised land in faith that one day they would return, even if they never saw it again in this life. More on that later. So they get back to Egypt, and we read that Joseph's brothers are now afraid. What are they afraid of? 
Well, they reason, against all evidence, Joseph's already forgiven them. But now they're afraid that now since Jacob is dead, Joseph is going to exact his revenge on them for selling him into slavery. So look at verses 16 to 18. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Now, Notice that the brothers here, they're truly repenting. Before Joseph, for their sin, they don't make excuses. They admit they're wrong. They offer to make it right. We're your servants. This is a good picture of repentance, except they couch the whole thing in a lie. Look, verse 16. They say to Joseph, your father gave this command before he died, saying, Say to Joseph, please forgive your brothers. Jacob never said that. He never gave that command. The brothers are afraid. And so, just like their forefathers before them, they take matters into their own hands. They try to make their own way to get their desired ends instead of completely and fully trusting in God to accomplish his purposes, right? Once again, like we've seen time and time and time again in Genesis, We're seeing the people of God as imperfect sinners. They're mingling good intentions and actions with bad intentions and actions, but God chooses to use and to bless them anyway. Think back over Genesis. Real quick, let's do it again. How many times have we seen God's chosen people, even the chosen members of the line of promise, fail in sin, in fear, in lack of trust, in choosing their own way over God's. Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, and what did they do? They hid. They were fearful. They tried to cover themselves. They hid from God, tried to cover themselves instead of trusting God's covering. And then Noah, the great man of righteousness, he sins. He becomes drunk and lays uncovered in his tent, and so he fails. And then Abraham the one through whom God promises to bring ultimate redemption through his offspring, he worries about his childlessness, right? So what does he do? Sarah was barren, so he takes matters into his own hands and he lies with his concubine Hagar and tries to create for himself an heir. And then when Abraham and Sarah enter the land of Abimelech, do you remember this story? (laughs) Abraham says to him, she's my sister. So that Abimelech takes Sarah as his own. Why did he do that? He was afraid. He saw that there was no fear of God in the land and he reasoned, oh, they're going to kill me because my wife is beautiful. Sinful. And then Isaac. What does Isaac do? The same thing that Abraham just did. He enters the land of Abimelech and just like Abraham, he says to Rebekah, she's my sister. Because he was afraid that he would be killed because of Rebekah's beauty. Even in the midst of his faith in God, he fails to trust perfectly in God's promises and sins. And then we get to Jacob. (laughs) How many times do we see Jacob time and time again falling and failing and taking matters into his own hands? Remember how he tricks Laban, 
the father of his wives and deceives him before he flees out of fear. And then even after wrestling with God and possessing God as his own, when he meets his brother Esau, he's afraid and he tries to appease Esau with his own scheming and his own plans. Always a trickster, right? Living up to his name, Jacob the trickster. Time and time again, what we see is that the people of God, even the chosen ones in the line of promise, fall short. They sin. But God, (laughs) in God's good purposes, God has seen fit to choose and use sinful, broken people to accomplish his good purposes, to fulfill his promises, to bring about promised redemption. And again, here in Genesis 50, we see the brothers of Joseph, which includes Judah, the one through whom will come the line of Jesus himself, hedging their repentance in a lie. They're messed up. They're messed up. They're broken. They're sinful, just like their fathers before them, all the way back to Adam. And we have to notice that Moses, who's writing this book, right? Moses is the author. He doesn't make any effort to conceal or to cover up their sinfulness all along the way. It's there. It's right there all along in all of its dark and disgusting detail. Why? Why does he do that? He's doing it to make it crystal clear that God's promises and purposes are based 100% wholly and completely on God himself and not his sinful servants. It's all God. It's all his faithfulness. It's his goodness and sovereign power to use these broken, messed up people to bring about his planned redemption. As we've journeyed through Genesis, have you stopped to think about how incredible that is? How amazing and encouraging is it that God would use these people to preserve his promises? It's incredible. And then what does this reality point to? It points past these broken patriarchs to the coming perfect son, the seed of promise, Jesus Christ himself. The only one who ever lived perfectly and then died the death that he didn't deserve to bring about perfect redemption. Adam and Abraham, Isaac and Israel, they point to the righteous son, the risen and reigning one. It's all about Jesus. So I turned 40 in five months from last Friday. I'm not thinking about it at all. (laughs) How many times this week, as I was preparing this sermon, did I stop and just reflect on the past 20 or so years of my life? In my own wanderings and failures and sins, there have been so many. I'm so sinful. And yet, wonder of wonders, God has seen fit to choose me, to unite me to Christ my Savior, to set his love upon me, and to use me to accomplish his purposes for his glory. Does that not blow your mind? (laughs) And that's true of every one of you hearing my voice who are in Christ. You're sinful. You are. And yet, through faith... God is using you in your own unique way in this grand story of redemption through the good works that God has ordained for you to walk in, 
to accomplish his good, sovereign purposes. It's incredible. Fall on your faces along with me and marvel at the goodness and sheer mercy and lavish grace of our God. He's always used what is weak in the world to show forth his goodness and his strength. That includes the patriarchs. That includes Joseph's brothers. That includes you and me. Joseph knew this. He knew this, right? Joseph would have had every right to be angry and to take revenge against his brothers for what they did to him. But what did he do? He trusted God and his good and sovereign purposes. So now we get to verses 19 and 20. His brothers come to him. How does he respond to them? Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Right? He admits, it's not for me to exact revenge. God will judge. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Just rest in that for a minute this morning so that you can rest in that for the rest of your lives. Throughout all of Genesis, the ups and the downs, the wanderings and sins and failures, God has been in control, sovereignly orchestrating. That's the story of Genesis. God is in control, and he's good, and he's keeping his promises through messed up people, not unlike you and me, and whatever the sin, whatever the suffering, whatever the evil that you experience in the world, the enemy is meaning it for evil, just like Satan in the, ar- in the garden, but God has a meaning in all of it for your ultimate good through Jesus Christ. Right? That's true even in the death of Jesus, the greatest evil that was ever planned. Right? Killing the only perfect son of God, and what does it say in Acts? That Herod and Pilate and all the people that took part in the crucifixion did only what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place beforehand. God used even the most evil, sinful act in all of the universe to bring about the good that many people might be kept alive. That's amazing. That's what God does. So what can separate us? What can separate us from the love of God? Persecution, trials, sword, death itself, nothing. Because God is sovereignly working all of his good purposes. So turn in faith. And believe that, along with Joseph, this morning. That's the trust of Joseph's faith that we see in our text today. God is totally in control and always working. Believe it, along with Joseph. All right, last point. We're almost done. This one's going to be brief. The future of Joseph's faith. I absolutely love what we read next. Look at verses 22 to 23. Joseph remained in Egypt... He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So he remains in Egypt for the rest of his life, but always with the faith of his fathers. And much like Jacob did with Joseph's son, Ephraim Manasseh, remember Joseph adopts two of his grandchildren as his own, And we read of the continued blessing of God on his people to the third generation through Ephraim as well. 
God continues to bless, continues to give offspring, right? And not only does Joseph trust God through the events of the past, but even into the future. Look at verses 24 to 26. Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Do you see the faith of Joseph that's on display here? What is Joseph trusting in? So one more time, let's go back to Genesis 15 and the promise that God made to Abraham. Right as God is walking through the sacrifice, right? Cutting his covenant with Abram. Remember that story? What does he say? Chapter 15, verses 13 to 16. Here's what God says to Abraham. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Three generations ago, (laughs) God said to Joseph's great-grandfather, the people of Israel will be afflicted in a land not their own. So Joseph, in our text, realized that this promise was coming true when Israel's sojourning in Egypt. But Joseph trusted again in God's good, sovereign purposes and believed that one day the people of God would be freed from their slavery in Egypt and return once again to the promised land. So he said to his brothers, God will visit you and will bring you out of this land. And when you go out, swear to me that you will carry my bones out of Egypt to be buried with my fathers. It's incredible. Joseph has the faith of his father Jacob and trusts in the future redemption and freedom of the people of God. He knows what's coming, right? That promise that God made to Abraham ringing in his ears, your people will be afflicted, they'll be in slavery, but they'll come out. (laughs) I will bring them out. And he knows that by faith, God told Abraham they're going to come back home. So Joseph trusts God, not only that he will work, he's worked in the past, but he will keep his promises into the future. This is what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verses 22. Hebrews 11.22 says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. (laughs) By faith, Joseph mentions the coming exodus and says, When they go out, bring me out with them. (laughs) He knew that his bones would be carried out with the people of Israel to the promised land. And so his body was preserved, right? Embalmed, just like his father's, not out of false worship, but as an expression of faith that one day he would be carrying out of his sojourning with his people out of slavery into the promised land. He knew what was coming. 
He knew. <laughs> so his body, this is cool, his body was placed in a coffin, which is literally the same word used for ark in Deuteronomy chapter 10 for the Ark of the Covenant. And in Exodus 13, we read that this Ark containing Joseph's bones was carried by Moses out of Egypt and then carried alongside the Ark of the Covenant through the desert wanderings and into the Promised Land. Dual symbols of God's covenant-keeping power and promises of God. That's amazing. Moses carries his bones out of Egypt. And then in Joshua chapter 24, way in the future, after the death of Joshua himself, what do we read in verse 32? As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up out of Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought for the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. <laughs> it almost makes me want to cry. Joseph made it at long last to the same tomb at Shechem of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see Joseph trusting in the secure future? God sovereignly, faithfully working his purposes into the future by faith. God did it. God did it. And friends, know this. Your future in Jesus Christ is just as ultimately secure. If we've seen anything throughout our long journey through Genesis, we've seen the sovereign, powerful, mighty works of God as he kept every single one of his promises. He provided land. He preserved the line of promise. He made for himself a people and he was with them by his presence at every step of the way, even in the wanderings. And that's true of you and me too. So over the last year or two, as we've considered the covenant-keeping works of God, would we see how Jesus has fulfilled all of God's promises and look to the coming ultimate fulfillment. This day is coming when he splits the sky and comes again to make everything that's wrong right, to unite us to himself forever in the new heavens and the new earth, enjoying his presence. It's coming. Joseph trusted by faith. Will you trust it by faith as well? Let's pray. So Lord, as you've kept all of your promises, working all of your good purposes, you have been in control never out of control, never lost the plot. And you've used us sinful people all along the way. You've chose to love us in Christ. You've chose to bless us. And one day we will be at home with you. So use these stories that we've seen in Genesis, this history of the people of Israel and the line of promise to strengthen our faith this morning. Would we trust in you over and above all the promises of the world? Would we trust in you over the fears of the world that we see, the craziness all around us? Would we trust that you are sovereignly working your good purposes for your glory? Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.